Hi, everyone. So I close my eyes, I open them, there's more people. Close them, open them, there's more people. That's always a good thing, right? More than, better than less people when I open my eyes, right? Um, and so today, today's message is, uh, it's, it's a doozy. I'm, I'm going to say that now, it's a doozy. Um, when I was writing this message, I have to tell you that it even convicted me. And uh, last week was a, a pretty tough one. It was a tough one. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about something um, that maybe many churches avoid, that many churches avoid. Um, and so for two weeks, we have been in this series called The God Strategy. In it, we have been looking at the first chapter of Romans, identifying what God is doing as a strategy underneath and why he's doing it and what he's doing. What Paul has shown us in Romans 1 is that the gospel is that Jesus saved us by dying in our place on the cross for our sin and rising again to give us new life. Showing us that Jesus alone is the power of God for salvation. As I had said it, Jesus must be the focus of our life or we are not worthy to call ourselves a Christian. We also learned last week that, well, sin is sin. And what that means is what Pastor Jared was saying is, if you steal a pack of gum from three Gs, it is as much of a sin as anything else, right? There's no leveling system when it comes to sin. Sin is sin. And you know the punishment of sin is death. It doesn't matter what sin it is. We are all worthy of death. Today, we're going to dive into chapter 2 of Romans, and let me just tell you, this is a really convicting uh, chapter in the Bible. It's about hypocrisy. No one likes to talk about hypocrisy, right? But we're going to talk about that today. The purpose of the message today is to show you that God, the God strategy within the conflict between Jesus and religion. Jesus and religion, a very big bomb of a topic, if you want to call it that. And so a couple of guidelines when we're reading Romans 2, because I've been really trying to get you to a point where I'm not assuming that you know certain things about the Bible. I want to lay it out for you so that it's so simple that you can understand um, the little details within it. So number one, every time you see Paul use the word Jew in this chapter, I want you to substitute that for a religious person or a Christian person for that because that's who Paul is really talking about here. He's talking about the religious person. He's talking about the Christian. How does that apply to us now? It's us as Christians. And so when you see the word Jew, substitute that for Christian or religious person. Number two, Paul is using a writing method that was common among writers among his time period. And he used it very much as an advantage to validate his message among the Roman church. And so now before I go into the scriptures, let me explain more about this last guideline of this writing style. So Paul in Romans 2 is using a writing style called Dia Tribe Style. Can everyone say that with me? Dia Tribe Style. I know this sounds like a rap song, but it's not, right? Um, and let me make this, this writing strategy really, really simple for you to understand. So let's imagine that you are in uh, 
what is it called? Speech and debate, right? And you have a debate that goes on, and usually you're given a topic, and usually the topic could be, for example, the existence of God, right? And so what you do in your mind is you have to prepare to the point that if anyone were to come against you with a point, you instantly have a response, right? And so what Paul is doing here is he's using this writing style in a way where he's picturing that the Jewish people are responding to what he said in Romans 1. And so when, you, when I first start this scripture, you'll see that he says although or, or though, and what that means is that he's talking to the Jewish people or he's talking about what happened before. And so I want you to imagine that in this speech and debate, you have something, you have an argument that you have to support. And so you're coming up with every single response to what your opponent can bring up against you. Does that make sense? And so Paul is doing this in this scripture. He's bringing up every single thing. He's bringing up every single thing that could possibly be coming from the opponent, right? And so in this case, it's not an opponent, but rather it's a believer. It's a brother or sister, and it's the Jewish Christians in specific that he's talking to. And so the reason why people do this, the reason why Paul is doing this, why he's imagining that someone is coming against them is because he's going to have every single response, every single response to the opponent to the point where they can't even build their argument, right? Wouldn't that be nice that we can build an argument before it even happens, right? Support for our argument. You know, I wish my fights with my wife were like that, right? Where I could build such a good support for my argument, I always win, but everyone knows that doesn't happen all the time, right? I have a Latina wife. You can't win all the time, right? You pick and choose. So Paul, <laughs> so Paul, in his mind, believes that Jewish Christians are going to believe that Romans 1, that he believes that Christians, sorry, Jewish Christians, he's believing that the Romans 1 chapter is only about Gentiles, right? And so he's imagining his brothers, his Jewish Christian brothers, that they're responding and saying, okay, I get it. You talked about the Gentiles. We know they're sinful. We know they're sinful, right? We know it. And Paul turns it around and he says, well, actually, you're just as sinful as your Gentile Christians, right? And so this is where Paul flips it around. And so we're going to begin in Romans 2. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to break the scriptures down in shorter segments because this is a really long chapter, and I don't want to read it all to you because it would take maybe till 12, and you guys would be hungry. And so I'm going to break it down into segments, and I'm going to do this without compromising what God is trying to say through Paul, right? And so I would encourage you, read Romans 2 in its entirety, but for the sake of time here, I'm going to break it into segments. So Romans 2, 1 through 15 is where we're going to start you, therefore, right? Again, what I'm talking about, what Paul is doing is he's responding to the Jewish Christians that haven't even came against them yet. He's, he's believing in his mind that there's this imaginary Christian Jew brother that is responding and saying, well, Romans 1 is just for the Gentiles, right? And so let me continue. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? 
or do you show contempt? Which means to look down upon for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God will repay each person according to what they have done. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God, this is a really big scripture in today's day, for God does not show favoritism. For God does not show favoritism. In Romans 2, Paul not only calls out the Jews of the Roman church, but he identifies several negative qualities that have carried on into our modern-day Christian religion when it, foc- when it loses focus on Jesus. And so point number one is Christianity without Jesus produces a critical spirit. Christianity without Jesus produces a critical spirit spirit. So you might be asking yourself, well, pastor, what can I do to avoid a critical spirit as a Christian? And not only that, if you're not Christian, you can also be critical. Is that right? Can we agree on that? That if you're not Christian, you can also be critical and judgmental. It doesn't only apply to Christians. So let me be honest, and it's going to be a little harsh, but in order to stay away from a critical spirit, We must, as Christians, stop focusing on the opposition and start focusing on the one who puts us in position for freedom, Jesus. You see, our current society has placed us in this invisible box, and it says that everything around you is an opponent. Everything around you is on the opposition. And so your life is this whole box of opposition, and so, for example, for example, let me give you a couple of things. We see our addictions as the opposition. We see our anxiety as the opposition. We see the past as our opposition. We see the language barrier as the opposition. We see other religions as the opposition. And we have placed these things more on the front focus than we have on Jesus. And so our mind is constantly focused on the opposition, but not focused on our Jesus. And when we lose focus on our Jesus, we begin to start to get critical. We start to get critical. And I've done this myself where I've been in churches and I judge the worship, or I judge the pastor, or I judge how they do things, or I judge and I judge and I judge, and I realized that it wasn't a problem of the church, but it was a problem of my heart. And many times when you look at when you're being critical or judgmental towards someone else, it is not their problem, but it is a problem of your heart. It's the fact that your heart has lost focus on Jesus. I told you this was not an easy preaching, right? Let me tell you, there's a scripture that says, if God is for us, then who can be against us in Romans 8.31? And I know everyone's like, yes, Lord, yes. But I want you to realize that if Jesus is not the focus of your life, that does not qualify for you. 
Many times we like to claim scriptures for ourselves when we don't claim Jesus for ourselves. Does that make sense? And so we like to grab these scriptures. God has a plan for us. God says I have strength. God says no weapon formed against me, right? But we don't see the whole Bible, and we don't see our whole Jesus. And so those scriptures don't apply to you because you don't, you don't, you can't call yourself a Christian at that point. Does that make sense? When all we see is opposition, it creates a critical spirit. But when all we could see is Jesus, a spirit of freedom infiltrates every area of our lives. When Jesus is the focus, the spirit of freedom infiltrates every area of our lives. Every area. Even the ones that you keep secret. Right? So tell me how. How can the porn addict turn into a man of God that can lead their family? How, tell me how an addict on drugs can turn his addiction from drugs to a love to Jesus. Tell me how the gangbanger can turn to a disciple of Christ. Tell me how a broken past can turn to a beautiful testimony. It can only be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. But Jesus must be your focus, not the opposition. Not the opposition, right? How is it that these things can happen? How is it that people can experience life change? It was not that they focus on the opposition and that they focus on Jesus. It was that they only focused on Jesus. They kept Jesus at the very forefront of their life. And as you can see, I included these type of people because usually in the church, these are the exact people we like to judge. The porn addict, the gangbanger. We like to judge these kind of people, but we fail to realize that if only Jesus was in their focus, it doesn't have to be like that. Let's continue forward. In, in Romans 2, 17 through 24, it says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You, you who arbor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Point number two is Christianity without Jesus produces hypocrisy. It produces hypocrites. What hypocrisy is, is that when you say, you say with your mouth you're a Christian, but your actions and your attitudes are far from reflecting Jesus. Now, I'm going to keep it real with you. I've noticed a lot of people that call themselves a Christian, but they only decide to reflect what they say is important to reflect to the world or their social group or their family 
in order to make the church or Christianity seem appealing to others. Right? It's not your job to make the church appealing. Your job is to make Jesus appealing, and people will come to church. Does that make sense? That is no longer being a Christian when we're reflecting only certain things of the Word of God. And what we essentially do is we make our own religion. We make our own religion. We like to pick the parts of Christianity we like, and we like to keep out the parts of Christianity we don't like. And in essence, what we do is we make our own religion. And we say, you call yourself a Christian, but your, your religion's actually called Aiden. <laughs> your religion's actually called Arnie. Your religion's actually called Savannah or Kiana or Merville, right? It's your own religion. It's no longer the religion of God. It's no longer Christianity, right? This is a really, <laughs> I wrote this down just this morning. It was really hard for me to type in here. But I want to say this, and I, I think I must say this. Jesus loves all people, but he never compromised the truth of the word of God to seem appealing to the world. Can I say that again? Jesus loves all people, but he never compromised the truth of the word of God to seem appealing to the world. Why? Because his actions and words were out of truth and spoke for themselves and not out of selfish ambitions. Jesus' actions were a point to God. If you say you are a Christian, if you say you are a Christian, you are not saying that you, not, you only abide by parts of the Bible or pieces of the Bible. When you say you are a Christian, and this this makes me so sad because I think people have lost this. If you say you are a Christian, you are saying you abide by the whole Bible. You are saying you abide by the whole Bible, not just to the pieces you like, right? Society wants to tell you, pick and choose, make your own religion, whatever makes you happy. Would you rather be happy or would you rather be fulfilled? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Would you rather be happy or would you rather be fulfilled by the truth of Jesus that is only in the whole Bible, not parts of it? If you say you are a Christian, you say, you're saying that you abide by the whole Bible. By the whole Bible. Let's continue forward. <laughs> Romans 2, 25 through 29. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Point number three is Christianity without Jesus produces insecure Christians. Christianity without Jesus produces insecure Christians. 
And these are the kind of Christians that feel as though they have to continue to do good works to earn something from God. Continue to move on. Continue to do good, to earn something from God. To earn and earn and earn. That's what our lives teach us, is that we have to achieve something. If I want someone to like me, I have to do something. And so when it comes to God, we think we have to do things in order to earn his love. But it's quite the opposite. Remember when I was first preaching, when I, we were reading um, Romans 1, the very beginning. And there was something that I said that is essential to understanding the word of God. Do you guys remember what that is? Anyone? Anyone? Context. Context. Context, context, context is important to understanding the content of the Bible and how it applies to your personal life. Again, what I said is we like to pick and choose the scriptures that we like, but we don't see the full picture when we don't read the full chapter before or after, right? And so we pick these scriptures, and when you get into the scriptures and you look at the background and you get into the thick of it, you realize that these scriptures that you applied to your life had nothing to do with you, but had to do with the time period that it was set in. Pharisee. Do you know that word, Pharisee? Pharisee is probably a word you heard a lot in Christian churches, but maybe you haven't understood this group of people and why Jesus and other figures in the Bible were opposed to them. And so I want to explain this a little bit for you guys before we come to a close. Pharisees in the Bible, there in the Bible there's three separate Jewish groups. And each three separate groups were represented by different religious philosophies. And so this included the Sadducees, included the Pharisees, and included the Essenes. Another fact, the, the Pharisees were the largest of these different religious philosophies and believed in five main things. And so let me tell you what they believed because many times we read the word and we hear the name Pharisee and we kind of get it, but we don't fully get it. Does that make sense? And so let me explain who these people were. They believed in five main things. They believed that priestly purity for all Jews, including temple rituals. And so this would include circumcision. And so what they believed was that Jewish people were set apart, and so that meant that they had to do rituals. They had to do all these things in order to keep in good standing with God. Number two, belief in providence. So they believed that what happens is the will of God, which is kind of weird because they also believe in fate, which means that some things happen just because. Number three, they believed the concept of the resurrection of the dead. Number four, they believed the belief in angels and demons. Number five, they taught that besides the commandments, there was an oral law that was also passed down from Moses. One of the functions of the oral law was to either reinterpret the Mosaic law or to update it in a sense that over time, certain issues and concerns were not addressed in the original legislation. And so remember, the law of Moses is what? Ten commandments, right? Pharisees had made it like 300-something commandments, right, through this belief. 
Next thing, Pharisees were highly regarded by the middle class because of the Pharisees' strong oppositions to the beliefs of both the Romans and the Greeks. Another thing, again, they, they strictly stuck to these laws. And they stuck to these laws to the point where they were not supposed to miss the Messiah. Which is unfortunate because they did miss the Messiah. And they actually had a big part in the death of the Messiah, Jesus. Another thing is the Pharisees were the gatekeepers of the Jewish people. And beliefs. Uh, so if, if any person, idea, or belief were trying to come to the Jewish people, they were the ones to decide if it was left, if it was let to let in or if it was to be removed. And so they were the gatekeepers. Anything coming in or out of the Jewish people was through the Pharisees. So let me, let me explain myself. Um, well, the Pharisees for the Jewish people were more than just a religious group. Um, the Pharisees to the Jewish people were the protectors of their beliefs. They were the gatekeepers of any person, idea, or belief that came close to the Jewish people. And their accountability to the law, to the rituals, and to God. Well, of all of this, if we take all of this into consideration, we have to assume that the Pharisees had power with the Jewish people, right? I hope you're tagging along because you have to kind of follow me here. <clears throat> so they had power over the Jewish people. Why? Because they had so many big roles for the Jewish people. They were the gatekeepers, the protectors. They were the ones that kept them pure and set apart, right? So with all this, we can assume that the Pharisees had power with the Jewish people, and with power comes humanity, and with humanity comes sin, and through sin, insecurity enters in. So, Romans 2 never mentions the Pharisees. So why am I talking about them, right? You're probably asking yourself. It never mentions the Pharisees at all, Romans 2. But it is talking about the Jewish Christian believers, right? So with this, we can assume that a large majority of these new Jewish Christians' lives, that they were being taught, led, and manipulated by the mentality of the Pharisees. What was at the very top of the mentality of the Pharisees was entitlement, which then led to insecurity. So the new Jewish Christians were filled with this entitlement that led to insecurity that was taught to them by the Pharisees. That because God had chosen the Jews, that because God had gave the religion of Judaism as a construct to keep pure from God, and because they were given the law by God, that it meant that they were above sin and above judgment. Can that not apply to today? Us as Christians can feel as though we're above sin and we're above judgment. And at the very top, the Jewish Christians felt as though they had to do good works so that they can earn the love of God and feel that they were in right standing with God. But because their heart was in the wrong place, it numbed the effect that Jesus could have had. I can't tell you how many times in my own life that I've wanted to do good works in exchange for favor and the love of God. 
I remember when I was younger in middle school, elementary, I had this, the, biggest crush in, the biggest crush on this girl in church. And I literally told God, God, I will feed the homeless if you make this girl love me, <laughs> essentially, right? Twisted thinking, right? Thinking that good works can give me something from God, right? Many of us, whether we admit it or not, do the same thing. Why do we try to earn the love of Jesus? We already have it. Why do we try so hard to do good works to replace our past? Jesus already died for it. Why do we try so hard to be approved and seen by God? We are already seen. Why do we try to save ourselves when we have been saved by the blood of Christ every day for the rest of our lives when we claim Jesus as our Savior? Insecure Christians is the outcome of being lost in achievement and losing sight of the character of Jesus. Jesus likes to give things for free. My kind of man. He likes to give things for free, but you must welcome it with open hands and action. Open hands and action. From this message, I want you to understand Really get this in your mind. Religion, Christianity by itself can never save us, can never change us, can never propel us forward into where we want to go in life. Only the blood of Jesus can. Only the blood of Jesus can. And that must be our first focus the God's strategy then in Romans 2 is to use Paul to proclaim, proclaim a strong message. Religion is not what saves us. Jesus does. Without Jesus, Christianity is but a structure of a broken house. If the church does not have Jesus, it's a broken house. If I say I'm Christian and I don't have Jesus, I have a broken temple. So what I want to leave you, what I want to leave with you here t- today is if you're here just claiming to be a Christian, but you don't have a love for Jesus, then it's time to change something in your life. Because the minute you turn on to Jesus, you won't be able to stay the same. If you'll pray with me today. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you are so, so good. Father, we pray.